0: The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's, The greatest flavors unite in all-new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Wick nuggets, fries and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week, only at Donald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.
1: I'm Steve LaTarte, STP auto expert
0: and former crew chief. I know what it takes to keep engines performing at their best. STP's latest breakthrough
1: additive, STP Ultra 5-in-1 Plus Fuel System Cleaner Plus Fuel Stabilizer, delivers three times the amount of cleaning agents versus premium gasoline and helps keep fuel fresh during storage. For over 60 years, STP has been on the cutting edge developing products to
0: help engines run better, longer. One bottle contains three times by weight the amount of cleaning agents compared to 20 gallons of the leading premium gasoline.
1: STP here at the NBC Sports Charlotte studios today, and I'm joined by a new NASCAR American analyst. He's been on our program a few times in the last couple of weeks. It's Slugger Labby. Slugger, uh, thanks for being here, first of all.
2: Great. This is pretty cool. This is the first time I've ever done something like this, so I'm
1: looking forward to it. All right. I'm well, really glad to have you. You were in the office here last week telling us this story, which somehow, I, not being an intrepid enough reporter, I had never heard about how you had gotten from Maine to North Carolina, which was essentially by bumming a ride one day when you decide you're going to work in NASCAR. So tell us how that happened.
2: Yeah, sure. It's a, it's a neat story, and it uh, actually takes a little bit of time, but the interesting thing was uh, I lived in Maine, grew up in Maine all my life, and, and I worked for a, a racer back in the Northeast. His name is Kelly Moore, a famous racer from the Northeast, and he would run some combination races in the South. Uh, we ran Rock and Ham. We ran... Uh, Daytona, Randover, Delaware, and and in the process of running those races, I became good friends with Scott, Marty, and Andy Houston. We had a good relationship going. You know, that relationship started about 1987, and uh, it just so happened in 1989, the north-south combination race was at Oxford Plain Speedway in Oxford, Maine, and the Houstons come up, And, uh, before the race, I looked at Scott and I said, Hey man, I said, do you have room for a package to go back to North Carolina? He's like, yeah, sure. Whatever you need. Well, what is it? And I said, me, (laughs) he's like you. And I said, yeah, I said, I'm just ready to get out of Maine. I really enjoy racing. My dream is to get into racing, and it's, it's time for a change. I just, I'm just, i ready to move. And he's like, uh, sure. He said, I guess we'll work it out. He said, just meet me at exit 5 at, at uh, 7 o'clock in the morning, and uh, you can jump in the holler with us, and we'll head south. So uh, we had run the race at the Oxford 250, and I think we finished second or third that night uh, with Kelly Moore. And I remember getting home about 3 o'clock in the morning and woke, woke my parents up, and I said, hey, I got some news. And they're like, what's wrong? What's wrong? I said, nothing's wrong. I'm moving. Like, what do you mean you're moving? They had no idea. Yeah, can this wait? (laughs) And they're like, no, no, no. Wake up. I am leaving in three hours, and I'm moving to North Carolina. And my mom, she starts bawling. My dad, he's all emotional. What do you mean? I said, look, I'm just going to go follow my dream. I'm moving to Maine. I'm going to go upstairs, pack my suitcase. Uh, I think I had $1,000 in cash, and away I went. You know, my parents dropped me off uh, at exit five on the main turnpike, and there they were. They were waiting for me and uh, jumped in the holler, closed the door, and away we went, and one thing led to another. And I think we were, like, in Virginia, and Scott Houston looked at me and said, hey, where are you going to (laughs) live? (laughs) And I'm like, uh, you know, I never really thought about that. I said, what do you got for options? So I ended ended up Tommy and Martha Houston, uh, which are great people. They've been supporting the the Bush Grand National Series a lot. It worked out where I stayed in their basement, which was a fully furnished uh, apartment. They let me stay there forever. I worked on the race team. I didn't get no pay. I just volunteered all my time. I just wanted to be in the sport. Uh, it was a great opportunity for me, and, and if it wouldn't be for the Houstons, I don't know where I'd be today, to be honest with you, but they, they they took a chance on a kid from Maine that didn't know very little about it. I mean, I, I worked a few combination races, uh, had a beer or two with the Houstons uh, on the road, but uh, other than that, they didn't know much about me, but they knew that I was successful racing in the Northeast, so uh, they gave me a shot. I lived in their basement, and I worked uh, during the day on their race cars, and uh, experienced the Hickory nightlife uh, with the Houston boys, so it was <laughs> (laughs) It was a pretty cool environment. They got a sponsor, full-time sponsor, Rose's. Uh, in 1989, and we ended up finishing second in points that year to Rob Murrow. so A lot happened. They put me on full time. I couldn't believe that I was getting paid to work on race cars. It right. Was, it was just a phenomenal thing. It was like, hey, a check right. for working on race cars. Are you yeah. serious?
1: Find something you love to do, and you never have to work a day in your life. That's right. So
2: yeah. uh, you know, back in Maine, we just did it full time at night. When you get done with your day job, you went worked on a race car until midnight every night. That's just how you grew up. And mm-hmm. uh, to get this opportunity to get paid and and to go racing full time was chance of a lifetime. It was a dream, dream come true. So yeah, one thing led to another and myself and scott uh, we got a, a house together that we lived in and uh away we went racing so like i said if it wasn't for the houston's i wouldn't be here today uh, it's just a neat experience and, and a good story that you know people take chances on people and i was just a fortunate guy to say sure jump on the truck and and they trusted me and it, they uh, let me stay in their house for six months and everything worked out great 86 you said or 87? that was 1989
1: 89 okay 1989, so, so, so. 28 years later yeah, yeah sure okay. so
2: it's uh I didn't know much about the sport like I should have, but they took a chance on me and I, and I had good teachers along the way, you know, starting with the Houstons and Gary Dehart, Steve Bird, had had really good teachers, Bob Labonte Sr., which yeah. that was probably the best one. And uh, just, I've been very fortunate to have a high school education. I followed my dreams, Nate, and just took a chance and moved away. I, I think I went back home. I flew back home probably four months after I got there and, and got my pickup truck, and my motorcycle, and some some more clothes. I didn't have much. All I had was a suitcase, and uh, I started my life in North Carolina. And eventually, my parents, they ended up moving to North Carolina with me, and my dad was a motorhome driver for Terry Labonte. So, oh, cool. Yeah, so it, it was pretty cool. And my mom, she worked in the office for Terry Labonte as well, so uh, kind of drugged the family down with me. My dad was a racer all the time. He worked for Dick McCabe. Uh, another famous Northeast racer. And when I was growing up, I always wondered where my dad was at night. I never really could figure it out. And then once I finally figured out that, Hey, he's working on race cars. (laughs) I finally got that bug from my dad to follow what he did. You know, it's a, it's a career move that, uh, I've never regretted. I really love the sport of NASCAR. I've been doing it for 32 years. Uh, it's just something you love. I'm, I'm approaching 1100 races in NASCAR. Uh, and I just hit my 500th race as a crew chief in Kansas. So, uh, I've been around the sport for a while. I've seen a lot of things change, uh, some good, some bad, but definitely happy to be in this sport of NASCAR. I love it. It's all I've done. If NASCAR were to shut down today, I don't know what I would do because that's all I've ever done.
1: It's a wonderful story, Slugger, and it's, like, it's truly the embodiment of the American dream. You found something you wanted to do, you pursued it, and you made it happen for yourself. That's really cool. Hickory, did you ever run into Dale Jarrett? We did, yes. <laughs> uh, I've actually
2: done a few races before with Dale Jarrett. Uh, worked with John Ir- Irwin. I don't know if you remember him. He was Dale's longtime crew chief and did some work with them. So, yeah, definitely uh, the Hickory life was very unique. <laughs> uh, it was a good job. Met a
1: lot of cool people along the way. Was there a call of the wild that you heard, Slugger, that just made you get on that hauler that day in 1989, or had it been building, or was it just something – was there some impetus for it? Was there something that happened that said, yep, this is the day I'm leaving? Well, you
2: know, like a kid, you always watch every Daytona 500, right? You're in Maine working in your race shop looking outside at snow piles, right. and then they're racing in Daytona in February, and I'm thinking, man, one day I want to get there. Uh, and it was just time. you know. I, I made some good friends, some good relationships, and I believed in my abilities, even though I didn't have – no way to prove my abilities until I had the shot so uh, it was a unique shot that I got and I figured hey I'm gonna make the best of this and I and I worked a lot of hours trying to do whatever they wanted me to do to show that hey I, I can do this job I just need a shot and you know those chances don't happen no more today you know right. you have to have right. a mechanical engineering background to even get in the door to get an interview so uh, definitely a very fortunate to uh, I, myself and Tony Gibson's are two of the last crew chiefs in the garage that don't have a mechanical engineering degree in the old
1: school uh, yeah. yeah
2: so I I'm on the way out, obviously, and I'm sure Tony Gibson, he's going to retire one day soon, so uh, it's – the sport has evolved a lot and engineering has taken over yeah. and you see that wave of engineering coming in and, and sooner or later you just got
1: turned loose. So no matter how good a mechanic you are now, you can't just go to it and knock on a team's door and they'll, they'll put you as like the underbody guy or whatever. You almost have to show up and have some sort of education or engineering experience.
2: Well, it doesn't hurt to have an engineering degree for sure because that's, that's the way yeah. the sport is. But you know, Nate, honestly, our sport changed a lot when NASCAR did away with the ride height rule. And what I mean is these cars used to go through inspection like they do today, but uh, once we go through inspection we can drop the cars down to the actual race heights and back in the day you could set your race car up with a tape measure and go nowadays you got to set your race car up with a computer
1: because that's be so precise because NASCAR you're, is so you're down tight. to
2: thousands of, of yeah. an inch you know yeah. so everything's so precise and, and you simply can't set up your race cars no more unless you have a computer yeah. so the sport changed dramatically that day when they announced the no ride high rule uh in, in monster energy cup racing so uh, it's a unique twist in our sport. A lot of people don't realize that our sport changed a lot that day, but it certainly did.
1: Okay, let's pause the podcast here to tell you about a product from our presenting sponsor, STP, and that is the Ultra 5-in-1 Plus Fuel System Cleaner and Fuel Stabilizer. For more than 60 years, STP has been on the cutting edge developing products such as this to help engines perform at their best. And this newest product, the STP Ultra 5-in-1 Plus Fuel System Cleaner and Fuel Stabilizer, delivers three times the amount of cleaning agents versus premium gasoline. That helps keep fuel fresh during storage, especially in engines that are stored over an extended period of time. I have used products such as these for years in my personal cars. They're very easy to use. You just put the contents in the gas tank and they improve fuel efficiency and also keep your engines running smoothly. The STP Ultra 5-in-1 Plus Fuel System Cleaner and Fuel Stabilizer is compatible with all two and four-stroke engines, including lawnmowers, boats, and motorcycles. And one bottle contains three times by weight the amount of cleaning agents compared to 20 gallons of the leading premium gasoline. So be sure to check out the STP Ultra 5-in-1 Plus Fuel System Cleaner and Fuel Stabilizer. And now let's return to our conversation with Slugger Labby. You talked about all the people you've worked with, Slugger, but a lot of teams as well. Your first job was as a crew chief was at Robert Yates Racing. W- were you anywhere before that in Cup?
2: No. Uh, actually, my first job uh, as a crew chief was with Kenny Irwin Jr. when he ran five races for David Blair Motorsports, which was an affiliate right. of Robbie Yates Racing. So uh, I-, I was a mechanic there, and they gave me the shot. said, hey, go work with this kid. Go take him testing and go racing. And uh, we sat on a pole. We qualified second a lot. I think his best finish was eighth. And we had nobody on our team. It was just a bunch the janitor he wasn't doing nothing you're going with us to the track this week whoever wasn't doing anything went to the track with us yeah. and we were very very successful and again worked very very hard when i had that shot and made the best of it and it paid off
1: kenny Irwin jr uh his rookie season like you said robert robert yates racing and then you were there for a couple years i was with yeah. robert for a couple of years yeah, yeah
2: i've actually worked for robert yates racing three different times so oh really okay yeah so it was like <laughs> one not, time with you, dj if you, yeah you right a few for years sure for yeah cool. and uh so back and forth and you know when you're in the sport for 32 years you, you can work for a lot of people you know uh, it's not everyone like Chad Knauss that's been with Hendrick Motorsports for so long with one driver. You know, it's, yeah. it's kind of rare in today's role. But, you know, I was with Paul Menard for a long time in the sport, very fortunate, because it doesn't happen often nowadays.
1: Mm-hmm. He went from Yates to DEI and worked with Michael Waltrip, and your first win, Daytona, the July race, 2002. Actually, I was just looking at this. I saw the interview with you, because I was looking the way that race ended, which was controversial, and I think was one of the trigger points to getting to the green-white checkered finish. They, they littered the backstretch with uh, seat cushions, because they didn't like the. Or yellow, and I'm watching it, and then oh, as they're showing like the cars going through the debris field, here's Slugger Labby getting interviewed on TV as the first time winning crew chief. That must have been an amazing night all around for you.
2: It was, you know, and, and what was really neat was we were sponsored by Napa, Napa Auto Parts, and then Kelly Moore, who I grew up with, he was sponsored by Napa Auto Parts, and he won the race that night too. So both yeah. of us had won. Uh, it, was, it was a pretty cool deal, but I had my family there, which they typically didn't travel a whole lot with me, but my family was there, and we won the race. It was just awesome, awesome feeling. And I man, I was thinking in Victor Lane, like, what the Hell, this kid from Maine is in Victory Lane That's at Daytona, amazing. and thinking back of all the Daytona 500s uh, when we were working in the shops, looking at snowbanks, and, and wishing we were in Daytona, it, it was just really neat to get my first win at Daytona after thinking this is the reason why I want to move. I want to be in Daytona.
1: And you had three wins with Waltrip at DEI, all on plate races. Obviously, that was when they were kings. I mean, there was a three or four year period there where every race it was Daytona Junior, Michael Waltrip were the favorites, and it was just a matter of could somebody knock them off. What was it like to be a part of that juggernaut? That must have been amazing.
2: Well. It was really cool. We had awesome horsepower. You know, that was a lot of it, but we paid attention to detail. We worked really, really hard on our speedway program, and I was down in in the 15 shop, and then Tony Erie Sr., Tony Erie Jr., they were in the 8 shop, and we were as competitive as could be. Actually, Jay... (laughs) That spilled
1: over on the track a few times. It it did, you know,
2: because we knew when we got to Daytona and Talladega, it was going to come down to the 8 or the 15. Actually, this is a funny story. Uh, Jay Ganeri, who now works on the 41 car, he was a long time member of uh, the 8 car, and every time I would walk in the 8 shop, they had air horn that went off. And those guys would scramble, (laughs) start covering up their race cars because they didn't want me to see what they had going on. Yeah, it was always a a, a really in-depth competition. Teamwork, huh? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) To a degree. When it comes to speedway racing, we had our own deals, you know, and uh, it, it was really cool that the uh, the two teams were really really competitive and yeah. we didn't share much information on plate races but uh, it it was hard work and preparation for sure but Nate I got a funny story in 2003 when I won a Daytona 500 it was rain shortened and not many people know this story but this is a true story so it started we just took the lead past the 48 car and a lap later it starts raining. So it was an hour had gone by and and I was thinking, man, I am going to win the Daytona 500 cuz had looking at the forecast, it's going it's going to rain. This thing is done. We're just waiting. And my stomach got tore up and I was like, man, I got to go to the bathroom. So, I'm sitting there in the bathroom. Just picture this. I'm sitting in the bathroom, got my headset on, going to the bathroom, and they call the race. <laughs> So, me, so I pull up my No TV pants. interview this time yeah, unless yeah. you can get out there. It's yeah. It's crazy. So, I pull up my pants, run outside with my head. I mean, just screaming from the bathroom all the way to the infield, and we all dove on the grass. It was raining out, and we all dove on the grass and we celebrated. But uh, actually, when I won the Daytona 500, I was in the bathroom.
1: Nervous. <laughs> Tore so up. I twisted was thinking, in knots. Again.
2: Kid from Maine is going to win Daytona 500. All the memories and everything, I was just overcome with joy because it was a dream come true that Tommy Martha Houston took a chance on me. And then here I am, you know, like 10 years later or 15 years later. uh, I'm sorry, five years later in Victory Lane. So it's just, man, it just appreciate all the things people forward you, you know, because there's no guarantees on tomorrow. And uh, I'm just telling you, just from being from Maine and just to – accomplished all the things i've done been fortunate to uh, win at daytona win at talladega win at michigan win the brickyard
1: uh, I'm a very fortunate kid. That Daytona 500 it was rain-shortened, but Michael had the best car. He I did, guess, and, too, right? and
2: uh, we just got past and then he passed them back, and then it started raining. So everyone always said that that was Big E that controlled it that day. Uh, as <laughs> soon as Michael passed, he made it rain from the
1: heavens. So uh, it was pretty cool. So after DEI, you go to Evernham Motorsports, and you work with Jeremy Mayfield, actually win the race at Michigan on fuel mileage. Fuel mileage, yeah. Get, so get... I'm very
2: passionate about fuel mileage racing. You know, We've talked about it here on, on the show on NBC, and uh, – it's a lot of work to win a few mileage race. And uh, yeah. I, I was fortunate to uh, win one with Jeremy and Paul Menard. So uh, very, very proud of that. But we made the chase that year with Jeremy uh, first opportunity for me to make the chase. And, uh, it, it was a good deal, but it was short lived. Cause after that, you're back at
1: Yates, I guess the next year. And yeah. You- I always
2: had a great relationship with Robert yeah. and Doug Yates and, uh, Whenever things didn't work out for me, it was like a kid going back home. You know, they always took me back in and said, hey, go, go here, work on this,
1: or are you going to do this? And uh, the Yates have
2: always been super to me.
1: After Yates, it's it's RCR, and, and a few years later, 2011, you win that Brickyard race with Menard. How do you rank, or do you ever rank your victories? Like, Brickyard 400, obviously, you beat I you beat mean, Jeff Gordon was chasing you guys down for, like, the last, what, 30 laps That's and right. didn't catch you?
2: You know, the caution worked out perfect. There was a wreck off turn four, and a bunch of cars that went through the grass, and we had grass on our grill, so we were forced to pit and once we pitted we're like whoa save gas we can make this work it's going to be a stretch but we're going to make this work and sure enough there was uh, the uh, 27 car and then it was the one car and, and it was one other car that was all in the same strategy. And we were virtually passing each other back and forth because we knew it was going to come down. So we finally said, look, save gas, let them guys go. We'll get them back. And, you know, we saved a lot of fuel. And then with a lap and a half to go, we we gave Paul a signal, hey, we're turning you loose, go win this damn race. And sure enough, he just, Jeff Gordon was coming, like a second and a half, two seconds a lap. And we knew that uh, we were going to finish second or run out of gas. So we threw the hammer down and uh, Paul Paul got after it. And it and won the race, so the thing that was neat is when they tore that engine down, Nate, the pistons were melted. He had saved so much fuel running partial throttle that the pistons got so hot, wow. and they melted. And, and and you look at, I got that piston in my office, and, and you look at that piston, and you ask yourself, how did this ever happen? You know, we we shouldn't have finished that race. The motor should have blown up. And uh, fortunately, we didn't. Uh, never ran out of gas. He drove around, did his burn out, and drove to victory lane. So he did a great job saving fuel that day. But to win at Indy uh, was a great accomplishment. But the biggest thing to me that was rewarding was looking at John Menard, who was sitting me on the pit box, sitting beside me. And it just he has been to Indy with Indy cars and with Paul. And just he has given a lot to the Indy 500 and, and to the Brickyard. And, and to give him his first win there, it was just it was just amazing I to you Think know, about how this,
1: many millions upon millions oh he spent God. trying to win the indy 500 and sure and enough and, 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 and
2: to get paul's first win basically in his backyard yeah uh it, it was just a great feeling and uh it was our first year with richard childress racing we had nothing when when we started in 2000 the, the, you know the fall of 2010 uh, we didn't have a race car we didn't have a toolbox we didn't have a transport we had nothing it was a brand new team uh we built all new race cars and and here we are, 15 races in, we won a race, you know, and that was kind of like unheard of, you know. Uh so it was a, it was a great deal to be the leader of that team, start a new team and have it all come together and win a race so early in the season uh, and to give them a nod their win, first win in NASCAR at the Brickyard 400. There's nothing else I can say. So
1: what what does rank first or do you rank your victories? Is Daytona ahead of Indy or are they even or
2: <laughs> I don't know. I don't I don't really rank them but uh, you know, it's great winning with Michael, but I, I really think everyone expected DEI cars to win at Daytona and Talladega, and nobody expected us to win at the Brickyard that day. And yeah. to beat Jeff Gordon, who has, I think, five wins there right. at, at Indy, that, that's pretty damn special to me. I, you can't take that away from me. I got the trophy sitting in my office, and I look at it almost every day, and it just brings a smile to my face, knowing that, hey, I was the leader of this team
1: that got this trophy. Let's pause the podcast here to tell you about a new NASCAR podcast from a new sponsor. Check it out.
2: Drivers, start
0: your engines! NASCAR, family tradition, American pastime, serious fun. But have you heard the one about the champion driver shot down in his prime? He's got a gun tucked into the bib of his overalls. Or how Richard Petty broke his losing streak at Daytona. He hadn't won in so long. He said, you know, where's Victory Lane? I forget. And Kyle said, well, I know, I'll show you the way. Do you know what 2G really feels like?
2: Your head is going to come off your neck and exit the car through the right side window.
0: Or would you rather just kick back and enjoy the ride?
2: <laughs> Hell yeah.
0: I'm Rich Phillips, sports broadcaster and voice and of Texas Motor Speedway. The first lap turn by the Monster Energy NASCAR Cup Series on the newly repaved and reprofiled Texas Motor Speedway. And I love NASCAR, so I'm working with Bush Beer and Wondery to bring you a new podcast that's going to take you behind the scenes and into my world at the track.
1: We always are trying to figure out how to be better, how to one-up ourselves. You know, that's just kind of in our blood.
0: Find something that you love and do it, and that's exactly what I did. She gave me written permission, but she thought it was just for one event. I told her, no, Mom, it was for 100 years. Yeah, that last one was NASCAR royalty Bobby Allison, and there's more where that came from. Here on Heritage Road, we've got outlaws, bootleggers, photo finishes, fiery crashes, tech talk, and tailgating. We'll take you down into the pits and up into the TV booth. You'll be able to smell the exhaust through your earbuds.
2: 44 cars times 850 horsepower. You'll never be the same.
0: Even if you're a lifelong fan of the sport, there's always more to learn. And if you've never paid attention, well, there's no better time than now. This is by far the best racing's ever been. So subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Wondery.com, or wherever you get your podcast. Look for Heritage Road, brought to you by Crisp
1: Cold. Brush. Please drink responsibly. And now let's return to our conversation with Slugger Labby. So five wins in Slugger's career. Had three with Michael Waltrip, one with Jeremy Mayfield, one with Menard. But really, I think we can almost count the Coca-Cola 600 is maybe five and a half, <laughs> five and three quarters, because that was your car. You certainly had a lot to do with the preparation. Austin Dillon's win at Charlotte Motor Speedway. I know you sat here, Slugger, and talked about it on NASCAR America, but I want to give you another chance to tell people this again. It, it really seemed like that was closure. A lot of crew chiefs, they leave a team, and a, that team wins, and they probably are bitter about it. But it's the complete opposite with you, and it's genuine, I can tell.
2: Well, I tell you, I I guarantee you, Mike Dillon and Eric Warren, you know, we talked about it Monday morning after the All-Star race, and I bet you when it all got done, they probably thought, wow, that was easy, you know, because it was like no remorse. We all shook hands. It was like, it, it was needed. The kid needed something fresh, and I, d- I didn't want to hold anybody back. It was just time for a change. But going back to that race car, it was a brand-new race car we had built. We had it in the wind tunnel. It made the most downforce. It was the best car that RCR had built. Uh, a lot of work went into that you know specific uh, specific car. That Monday morning, the car was already set up for Charlotte. It was already chassis downed. It was already templated. It was ready. I mean, in today's world, you got to be a week or two ahead all the time sure. in preparation. So that car was done and uh, you know in talking with the engineers after they won the 600 they didn't change a whole lot because it happened on Monday afternoon and then the car was loaded up Wednesday afternoon so they didn't have much time to change anything so no I don't get credit for the win um, and I don't want to get credit for the win but but you felt uh, part of it I I know deep down in my heart there was a lot of my hard work and everyone else's work and my leadership that went into that car and and to take it to victory lane and and i had promised austin when i talked to him on tuesday the day after i was released i said man i i will be in victory lane when you win your first race if i'm there and uh sure enough i held up my part of the deal you know i I met him in victory lane i saw him in the car Uh, i gave richard a hug first he was the first guy i seen when i went to victory lane was was richard childress i gave him a hug and thanked him for everything, and he did the same as well. And Austin was still inside the race car, getting ready to get out for to the TV stuff. And I stuck my head in there, and I said, man, can you believe it? You won your first race. He said, looked at me and said, can you believe I saved fuel finally? <laughs> and we won the race. So so I, I went around and shook everyone's hand. You know, there's 19 guys that worked on that team. Uh, they were at the track that day, and I shook every one of them hand, their hands. And there was only one guy on that team that had been at Victory Lane before in the Cup Series. And uh, he was the car chief. He worked with Richard Petty Motorsports, so when the 43 won at Daytona, he went. He was uh, at that race. So he was the only one that had been at Victory Lane. So uh, the smile on everyone's face was just so rewarding to me that they finally got to go to Victory Lane. So I shook everyone's hand, and I got to Eric Warren, and, and I thanked him for everything he did. And he told me, he said, man, stay in here with us. You're part of this deal. And I'm like, no, it's time for me to go. You guys enjoy this. And I, I walked out of Victory Lane, and and I knew that was the you know end of the chapter. And I was closing the book on my career at RCR. And I walked out of the gate of Victory Lane, went to my motorhome, sat down, had a beer. I-, I was just very generally happy for everybody at RCR, for Chevrolet, and for everyone at Dow and American Ethanol. They they put a lot into it, just no different than we put in equity right we put in the hours we put in the blood sweat they put in the financing so to see them go to victory lane albeit on fuel mileage it doesn't matter you know mm-hmm. they they won the race and that's what matters the most and i was very very proud of everybody that night the uh, radio station called me i was just like Two thirty in the morning hey can you come on air live and you know i was like sure let's let's do this you know and I <laughs> like talked. a west coast radio station no it was a uh, or... serious radio oh okay they, they, <laughs> yeah they called me so we uh we talked uh, you know about how excited i was and yeah. i didn't go to bed till like five o'clock that morning i was just so excited and happy it's it's like i was there but i wasn't yeah. you know and it was just very rewarding nate that I, I worked with austin for two years and we had a lot of speed in our race cars we made the you know made the playoffs, sat on a couple of poles, and, and just we could never put it all together. But finally, you know, they put it all together, and he won a fuel race. We had run out of fuel numerous times at Daytona 500 this year. We were running six with three to go and two to go, ran out of gas. Uh, we learned a lot since then on how to save fuel. And Austin put it all together. He listened to what the engineers were telling him, and he was the guy driving. He was the one saving fuel, and uh, he ran out of gas three seconds from the start finish line. He did his job perfectly, yep.
1: and I'm very proud of that young man. Well, certainly I'm sure they were proud of you as well, a fitting end to that chapter in your career, Slugger. And before we came in here, we were getting ready for NASCAR America, I heard you talking to Parker Kligerman out there, and you, you were telling me you know, it feels like you're getting your life back, things are slowing down. What is it like after being on the road for nearly thirty years and now suddenly you're around the house on like a Friday afternoon? Do you always feel like I gotta be somewhere? Is it hard to get shake that feeling or Well the life of a crew chief,
2: you're up every day at five AM. I think I've been sleeping until seven, so it's like a huge reward. You know, it's like <laughs> the news is on, wow, you know, I didn't I didn't realize that some of this stuff really happened, so um, it's amazing though that when, you, when you're a crew chief, you put your blinders up and all you do is work. I always felt that if I wasn't working, someone else was working harder than me to beat me. They always accused me at RCR of working too much. And that's just my mentality growing up from Maine is give it your all. If you're going to do this, give it everything you got. And it was nothing to work 80 to, 80 to 100 hours a week. I mean, that was just what was required. So, But now to slow down, it's different. Uh, I'm getting a lot of stuff done around the house, doing things that I was paying people to do. Now I get to do them. So it, it's uh, pretty pretty cool. I got a blister on my hand. Um, <laughs> myself and my wife were getting used to me being home, you know, because she's always used to me being gone. So if things get testy, I'll either jump in a truck or go for a walk or she'll jump in the golf cart and go see your parents or we're adjusting to the new life. got to get so, reacclimated um, to being um, in that yeah, relationship again. It's, yeah. uh, it's definitely a, um, a slower pace and, yeah. and something that takes adjustment and something to get used to. So uh, she's doing very well with it. I'm kind of invading her territory, so to speak, because. I'm never home and now I am. So, right. uh, It's like a new life, so it's uh,
1: been very neat the last couple weeks. I'm glad you've gotten that chance to to slow down a little bit. When you talk about the 80- to 100-hour weeks for a crew chief slugger, did that change much from 1998 to 2017? Did did the hours become greater, or is it always the same hours? It's just like the workload and and what you're worried about and how managing personnel has changed. Well, back in the 90s, you worked a lot of hours
2: working on race cars. We didn't have bodybuilding specialists. We didn't have crush panel specialists. We didn't have people bolt in your suspension on. I mean, you had to do everything. Your hands were on Z. that car versus You dismounted tires yeah. on Monday. You do. You had to do whatever you had to do. Oh, and then, by the way, you had to go pit practice, too, as well. You know. So back in the day, it, it was whatever it took to get that truck unloaded and then load it back again to go to the next show. Uh, in today's world, you are so inundated with information, so right. many emails, so many meetings. You have to take all this information from the aerodynamics group, from the engineering group, from the – Dynamicist, I mean, everything comes to you, and then at the end of the day, you have to make that decision uh, from the simulation to the setup uh, what springs what bump stops i mean what shocks
1: and you have to do that without being around the car all the time to really maybe feel like you know what well and that's the thing i
2: struggled with is i was always the guy that worked really hard you know when when nascar came up with the main grid template you know I, i took that as a challenge to get as much as i could every week and i and i worked hard on the cars nowadays um you sit in so many meetings planning and you know in our series you have to be months ahead preparation you know because basically after every race every car is cut all apart and goes back through the system so you race a car on sunday you don't have opportunity to race that car again for five or six weeks i mean it's just gone it's gone in the system mm-hmm. so uh you have to be months ahead in preparation what gear ratios you want what transmission ratios you want uh, what setup what steering bar i mean there's so many things that go what brakes? there's so many things that go into Uh, preparation of a race car but you know mondays are tough when you get back from the racetrack you're tired Either you're happy or you're mad, and then you have to start really getting to the nuts and bolts of what you're going to do for the upcoming race. And uh, Mondays are usually the hardest day uh, for a crew chief uh, after a race. You know, you you got post-meetings from the event. you got engineers waiting to talk to you to figure out the final setup of what you're going to run. you got to get home to your family, too. Mm-hmm. You, know? so, haven't, you haven't seen for you four You haven't days. seen because usually <laughs> Sunday night you right. get home about 10 o'clock and right. you're up at 5 to leave again. So uh, it's, it's a lot of work, you know, and – you see a lot of people getting burned out of the crew chief life and it happens and you know i'm very relaxed right now i'm happy to be out of the garage at this moment i needed a break i was uh i was burned out so to speak and uh you know we saw the kid on the 19 car he just stepped down a month ago he he had enough and wanted to spend time with his family so i mean i can relate to that and and a lot of people are generally will agree with me with my statements of,
1: you know, it's too much. Yeah, you're not the first person to say that, certainly. We're in, entering a, a, a great partnership here with doing some work for NBCSN. It seems like you've found perhaps something that will help fill uh, that competitive and, and work void. How do you like doing the TV? And and it, it didn't surprise me, by the way, when we Jeff Pinky <laughs> brought you on because you had all those times, all those years as a serious XM regular. You've always been very approachable with the media. Did you, did you feel like this would be a natural fit knowing that you're always kind of comfortable in interviews?
2: Well, I'm hoping so. I mean, I don't have no problem being behind a camera or behind a mic talking, uh, I tell the truth. Sometimes that hurts. (laughs) Sometimes it helps. But the the biggest thing to me, Nate, is I gave 32 years of my life to the sport of NASCAR, turning wrenches, making decisions. Now I, I really think that I want to give back to the sport in a different way. I want to give back to the fans, help them understand right. the technical side of our sport. Uh, I've watched plenty of broadcast. One of the jobs as a crew chief, you watch prior races to understand exactly what happened because a lot of times you sit on a pit box, you don't understand what happens. Right. You, you don't get to watch what happened to the 48 car or, or whatever. Average race fans sitting at home, they understand it because they can pay more attention to that. But um, when you watch replays, you know, I, I always thought, man, I would do this different. I would try to give, you know, this side of it because, you know, if, if you don't know much about our sport it's really easy for the average race fan to get lost in explanation sure. of well, what's going on you know someone might say the race car is really tight well what actually does that mean to the guys sitting at mm-hmm. home uh, in Delaware watching the race. He doesn't know what type means, so that's just an example. No, it's a great example. But, but, I, but, uh, I tell
1: people all the time, sometimes covering NASCAR for me is like, I feel like I'm translating NASCAR into English for people because I think there are great stories to be told, as you said. They're so highly technical, you need to be able to like convert it into something a layman can understand, and that's you're right. able to do that.
2: Yeah. So so my whole take on you know, my whole thinking right now is if there's such a way for me to give back to the sport in a different way, it's to give back to the fans to help them understand our sport better. So it gets them more interested in what we do, you know. I want to get more people in the grandstands. I want the TV ratings to go up. And if there's a small part of me that can help that, that's what I want to do. So uh, I've been fortunate to be in this sport for a while. I can afford to take a little bit of time off and do things like this. Uh,
1: because it really excites me are we writing off the garage for the short-term future is there a chance you might go back someday
2: or well there's opportunity uh i can go back in the garage and i i just don't know uh if i want to get back in the garage i'll be honest with you charlotte i wasn't going to the race tommy baldwin called me sunday morning and said hey i need you to spot i was like well damn all right here we go so i went to charlotte i walked in the garage got my radios and stuff and it, i wasn't sure i wanted to be there yeah you know uh, and it worked out for a reason. Tommy called me, had me go spot, and the three-team won the race. Things happened for a reason. No different than me getting in Tommy and Martha Houston's motorhome, a holler, and driving from Maine to North Carolina. Things yep. happened for a reason, and, and I believe that. So when Tommy said he needed help, I said, well, hell yeah, I'll be there. you know. And uh, it worked out. So... Uh, I just want to give back to the sport in a different aspect. I think I can do that. Uh, I have a lot of knowledge of, of the garage, uh, being there, like I said, for 32 years and seeing where it's been and, and where we're going. You know, the the biggest thing that I'm proud of is the safety innovations over the years uh, that NASCAR has come up with, you know, since we've had – you know, the deaths of uh, Dale Earnhardt Sr. and Kenny Irwin Jr. and mm-hmm. Adam Petty. Uh, NASCAR has been really reactive to it and done a lot, you know. And you see drivers hit the wall now. And if, if it would have happened 10 years ago, it, we'd be in, in crisis right now. But the innovations uh, that NASCAR has has really come up with, and a lot of it goes to the NASCAR starting R&D Center, you know, because they wanted racing safer for the drivers. I've said it time and time again, Nate, we can build race cars every day of the week. You can't replace race car
1: drivers. No, absolutely not. And
2: safety to me is something you never, ever, ever scrutinize. It doesn't matter to me if you're running a street stock. At Monad, Monadnock Speedway, uh, it, it doesn't matter where you're at; you can get hurt driving down the highway at 25 miles an hour. So,
1: and you're never safe enough. Jeff Burton says it all the time: safety's never, a moving target. Never, you can never, never hit it.
2: You look at what happened to the 43 car of Eric Elmerola at Kansas. You know, he virtually the back of the car went up and slammed down on the ground. That's when he got hurt when it slammed back on the ground. And I'm mad at myself for why didn't we think of something prior to this? You mm-hmm. know, and you ask yourself, what's the next thing after what we saw? a couple of Saturday nights ago at Kansas, you know, what's the next thing as, what else we got to do to keep these guys safe, mm-hmm. you know? So things like that, if I can help in a small way, that's i uh, I'm more than open to it, but I want to give back to the sport to the race fans to help them understand the technical side of our sport because it's not like it was back in 1990s where yeah. you you know you went to the showroom and, and drove a car off the showroom floor and that's basically was your race car and now it's completely different now and you don't set your race cars up with strings and tape measures no more you set them <laughs> up with with lasers and uh, photogrammetry and, and it's, it's just tremendous to me how the sport has changed and I think if we can help the race fan understand it better, it will excite them to get more interested
1: in our sport. Well, we're glad that you're here with us, Slugger, to to help us do that. You've done great work so far in NASCAR America. Looking forward to you doing more of it. This has been a lot of fun, enjoyable, great insight. Maybe we'll do it again sometime. Sounds
2: good. Thanks for having me. It's
1: pretty cool. Uh, I've listened to a couple of these here in the last couple (laughs) of weeks uh, with Dale Jr.
2: and Steve LaTard and a couple of others, and it's very uh, exciting, and I hope people listen and understand
1: uh, what I want to do and and why I'm here. It's great, man. Uh, glad to give you this platform. Thanks again. We appreciate Slugger Labby again for joining us. As we mentioned, he's been a great addition to NASCAR America, and it was great to have him on the podcast. He always brings good insight. He has a great story, as you heard. And as he said, he always tells the truth. I'm sure we'll have him back. Next week, we will have Roger Slack, general manager of Eldora Speedway, on to preview his track's truck race, the state of dirt racing. Hint, it's pretty good. And what it's like working for Tony Stewart. That's next week on the NASCAR NBC podcast, presented by STP. Roger Slack from Eldora Speedway. NASCAR is at New Hampshire Motor Speedway this weekend. Friday, Cup practices on the NBC Sports app and NBCSN at 11.30 a.m., Xfinity practice at 1 and 3 p.m. on NBCSN, NASCAR America at 4 on NBCSN, and Cup qualifying at 4.30 on NBCSN. On Saturday, Cup practice on the NBC Sports app at 10 a.m., Xfinity qualifying on CNBC at 11, Cup final practice at 12.30 p.m. on NBCSN, and the Xfinity pre-race starts at 3.30 p.m. On NBCSN. On Sunday, NASCAR America at 1.30 on NBCSN, countdown to green at 2.30, and the cup race starts at 3.15 p.m. all on NBCSN. Post race will go until 7 p.m. on NBCSN. We had great post-race coverage at Kentucky, so be sure to stick around for that. And also NASCAR America on daily 5 to 6 on NBCSN Monday through Thursday. Be sure to check out our Wednesday shows from the Hall of Fame. We had Ricky Stenhouse Jr. last week. We'll have Eric Almarola on today when this podcast is released. Next week, Denny Hamlin. So stay tuned for our driver series every Wednesday from the NASCAR Hall of Fame on NASCAR America on NBCSN 5 to 6 p.m. And a reminder that the NASCAR and NBC podcast presented by STP is on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Audio Boom, Spotify, and most podcasting apps. If you can leave a rating, review, or just tell people that you like what you hear, that really helps us out. If you have feedback, please send it to me on Twitter, at Nate Thanks again for listening to the Asked on NBC podcast, presented by SKP. I'm Steve Latart, STP auto expert and former crew chief. I know what it takes to keep engines performing at their best. STP's latest breakthrough additive, STP Ultra 5-in-1 Plus Fuel System Cleaner Plus Fuel Stabilizer, delivers three times the amount of cleaning agents versus premium gasoline and helps keep fuel fresh during storage. For over 60 years, STP has
0: been on the cutting edge developing products to help engines run better, longer. One bottle contains three times by weight the amount of cleaning agents compared to 20 gallons of the leading premium gasoline.